You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Raycon. Take 15% off all their products at buyraycon.com slash missionlog. So go grab a pair and a spare at buyraycon.com slash missionlog. This episode is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you could get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 392. You are cordially invited. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Ah, do you hear that, Norman? Love is in the air. It's the feel-good romantic stories that keep us coming back to Star Trek. And with the latest round, with the Dominion over, it's time to lighten the mood. Today's episode, you are cordially invited. um, A feel-good romantic story. This is the Klingon wedding, though. But, to be fair, at long last, it's the uh, nuptial celebration of Worf and Dax, and it won't be like a regular wedding. What do you, what do you mean? No, of course. I mean, there's going to be food, there's singing, there's dancing. And weapons fire, and blood rituals, and shouting, and fighting, and headbutting. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's just, it sounds so so human, like the weddings that, that I remember fondly. You know, I'm glad that you're such a good podcast host, John, because I don't think Wedding Planner is really kind of in your wheelhouse, but that all aside, while we worry about John's impression of weddings, let me tell you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about the stories of Star Trek, so that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. If you're so inclined, give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now for all of our audience out there that is in range of my voice, you are cordially invited to listen to John Champion's trivia. Well, here we go. Trivia for today's episode. It was written by Ronald D. Moore, and of course, he is back in his wheelhouse. It was always the running joke that if you needed a Klingon episode, you go to Ronald D. Moore, and that's what he delivers here. It was directed by David Livingston. Great to see David back after the most recent episode of his that we discussed, Dr. Bashir, I presume. Now, he's been bouncing back and forth with directorial gigs on Voyager as well at this time. Oh, man, so many ships. So many ships are mentioned here. Let's uh, let's name a few, shall we? We have the, uh, well, we have the Exeter. That was a, a throwback, uh, a ship mentioned in Chain of Command. Uh, we have the Potemkin, a classic ship name, which we have discussed before. First mentioned in TNG Season 4 Legacy. 
of course, named after the original Potemkin, which was a Soviet battleship, well, a Russian battleship from World War One, and later from the Soviet film Battleship Potemkin in 1925, which has gone down as one of the all-time great silent films from that era. Let's see, we have the Sutherland. Now, this is cool. We've actually seen the Sutherland before. I think way back to TNG Season 5 in the Redemption story arc. Also a Ronald D. Moore story, by the way. Also heavy on the Klingons when the House of Duras tried to scheme their way to the top of the Empire. Sutherland was the ship that Data took over as captain on Picard's orders. He met with a little uh, a little pushback there. Data did, if you might remember that. And we have the Akagi also referenced as part of Picard's fleet from Redemption. And worth noting that it was named after the Akagi, which was the Japanese flagship during the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. It was then sunk at the Battle of Midway in June of 1942 by the USS Enterprise. We had mentioned that before, but uh, worth reminding you. Now, let's talk about guest stars. In addition to the roster of usual guest stars, we get to welcome back Mark Warden for his second performance as Alexander Rojinko. We also meet Lieutenant Atoa from the USS Sutherland. He is played by Sidney Liufau, who has a background as an actor and stunt performer. You might have caught him in the original Blade or in the newer version of Hawaii Five-O. It may also not surprise you to learn that Sydney has been a professional Polynesian performer for decades. Dancer, choreographer, fire breather, musician. In fact, he did that for about 10 years for the Disney company at their theme parks. Finally, meet Cirella, mistress of the House of Martok played by Shannon Cochran. Now, without all that Klingon makeup, we first saw Shannon as Maquis member Kalita in both the TNG episode Preemptive Strike and the DS9 episode Defiant. Later on, she's under Romulan makeup in Star Trek Nemesis as Senator Tal Aura. In addition to Star Trek, Shannon appears in other feature film and guest TV roles, like a recurring gig on NYPD Blue and Scandal, Shannon also has a strong live theater background, particularly in Chicago, where she picked up a Jeff Award for her role in Pal Joey at the prestigious Goodman Theater. Now, John, I just to take one opportunity here. Rarely do we have a chance to make an apology on the air. But now, since we have David Livingston back as director, we can say sorry to all the fans out there that we didn't pick up on the pun of David Livingston, I presume. I presume, of course. If the wedding cake is a cellular peptide cake with mint frosting, things might get a little awkward. Prologue. With Deep Space Nine out of immediate danger and the Dominion on the run, for now at least, a lighter, friendlier, more laid-back atmosphere has taken over the station. Sisko catches up with General Martok to give him some good news. The General has been made Supreme Commander of the Ninth Fleet, which is headquartered at the station, but all Martok can do is grumble about the paperwork this entails. Still, he'd like to keep Worf as his intelligence officer, done, and then there's Alexander, who's currently sitting in Quark's bar, and you know what? He's having a good time. 
He's telling funny stories to Dax and Worf about how he's not very good at his job, but he's kind of the team mascot for his crew, and he's shipping out soon on a new assignment. So, surprise, Worf and Dax will reschedule their wedding now so Alexander can be a part of it. Act 1. Dax is perfectly happy to hand all the wedding planning over to Worf. He's so sentimental about it all, as she explains to Kira. Fully in planning mode, Worf then invites the guys to participate in a sort of Klingon bachelor party. It's called Kalhia, and according to Martok, there will be singing and all sorts of glory over four days. Sisko, O'Brien, and Bashir are to participate too, even as the latter have in mind that this is going to be something quite lurid. As for Dax, she'll have to do the traditional thing for a Klingon bride, which is to be sized up by the matriarch of the house, in this case, Martok's wife, Cirella. And right on cue, Cirella arrives at DS9 and greets Martok with snide remarks about his belly and his hair. Oh, so it's that kind of relationship when the great warrior is at home. Cirella dismisses her husband and Captain Sisko so that she may go find Dax on her own. Awaiting Sorella's arrival, Dax sets up the ritual candles, not made of the tallow of freshly killed Targ in the traditional way because, hey, they're on a space station. Sorella enters Dax's quarters, immediately dismisses Worf, and then lays down the law with Dax. She will be judged, and harshly, as an outsider trying to join the house of Martok. Tomorrow, Dax better have her traditional Klingon breakfast ready, and in the future... Do not use such obviously fake candles. Act 2. Worf needs to have a talk with Martok about Sorella. You see, Sorella objects to the very idea of Dax marrying into the family, but Martok is unwilling to say anything about it because, uh, well, this is her domain, not his, and it's just not a good idea. An even worse idea would be if Worf said anything about it because Sorella doesn't like him either. But hey, she can't do anything about him being in the house of Martok, so Worf's got that going for him. Time to start that wild Klingon bachelor party. Worf, Martok, Alexander, Sisko, O'Brien, and Bashir enter a hollow suite made into a small, hot cave filled with burning torches. The heat is part of the endurance test. In fact, this whole thing is definitely not about debauchery, and it's really more about struggle. Worf lays it all out for the newcomers. There's food, but you can't eat it. In fact, you can't eat anything for four days because temptation is one of the obstacles. Then there's blood, pain, sacrifice, anguish, and death. So, yeah. Four days of that, which is definitely not what the humans or Alexander had in mind. But there is a fun part. Everyone gets sticks or mastakas which they have to hold on to until the wedding. At that point, they can mock attack Worf and Dax in the tradition of Kalos's wedding. Yay. Having a much better day is Jake, who informs Quark that he just sold his first book. Well, there, there's no money in the Federation. But the Federation News Service is going to compile his wartime correspondence, which is very cool. He does ask Quark what's happening up in the Hollow Suite since he'd like to tell his dad... All Quark can tell him, though, is that the bachelor party is happening and to use your imagination. 
You don't have to use your imagination, though. We find Alexander passed out from the heat. But neither Worf nor Martok are willing to turn down the flames. Of course, they would do it just to help out the others. Nobody will look down on anybody who dropped out. Nope, everyone is going to push through. Similarly, Dax is in the middle of her own test with Sorella. She's holding up a large cauldron in each hand while reciting Klingon words, and it's just not good enough for Sorella no matter what, and no matter that Dax has already done it three times. It's a mind game at this point. Sorella pushes Dax harder than she would any Klingon woman just to make the point that Dax would never fit in since she's not Klingon. Dax just pushes on forcing herself to do the ritual and spewing the words right in Sorella's face. Act 3. Dax's grilling by Sorella continues. This time it's a lesson in Klingon family history. Ever the overachiever, and to rub it in Sorella's face, Dax has figured out that Sorella's royal lineage is a lie. Her 23rd grandmother was given the name of a royal and... Yes, Sorella's family have been living that life ever since. Sorella doesn't take it well. Time for another stage of Worf's ritual. It's blood! Bashir is delirious from the exhaustion and doesn't notice when O'Brien, Sisko, and Alexander back away from him, essentially volunteering the doctor for whatever is about to come. Worf says the pain will only last a moment. Act 4. It is time for a party. Dax's party, which is definitely not like Worf's party. There's a fire dancer, Lieutenant Totoa, from the USS Sutherland, and all the ladies seem to really like him. There's Quark being a little jealous, just maybe, about Dax getting married. Having a lot less of a good time are Bashir and O'Brien, who find themselves in the part of the ritual where they are suspended above hot coals. I'm going to kill Worf is all the doctor can muster about their current situation. Back at the good party, Odo shows up to complain about the noise, but Kira outranks him, and while she's at it, she says that they need to talk, rather than ignoring the rift between them since the Dominion occupation. Party foul avoided, but in walks the biggest party pooper of them all. It's Sorella who announces it's time for another Klingon ritual, which Dax straight up refuses then when things heat up, she actually punches Sorella in the face. Cut to the morning after. Hangover City, Population 3. Dax, Morn, and oh hey, Lieutenant Atoa. When Worf shows up, it's 10.30 in the morning, and he bears the news that Sorella has canceled the wedding on account of last night's incident. Oblivious to all of this are Odo and Akira, who hid away in a closet talking all this time and apparently getting things somewhat sorted out, but they're on duty now and need to get out of Dax's place. That just leaves Worf to basically shame Dax and demand that she beg forgiveness from Sorella, who sees Dax as unfit for the House of Martok and has called off the wedding. No dice. Dax says that they don't need the rituals, they can just be married by Captain Sisko. And with that attitude, Worf says, maybe Sorella is right. And he calls off the wedding. Act 5. While Worf is sulking in his quarters on the Defiant, Martok comes in to give him a little pep talk. You know, the kind that goes something like, you really screwed this up. 
And while we're at it, Martok basically admits that Sorella has many terrible qualities, but it's better to have someone around with whom he can share his victories, and he loves her. Bashir and O'Brien are in Quark's, about to tuck into a huge amount of food to break their Klingon fast since the wedding is off, but before they can start and walk Sisko with Martok to say that Worf is apologizing to Dax of the wedding, and therefore the fast is back on, only it's not. Worf comes in to say that Dax has refused, so now it's Sisko's turn to visit the old man. Sisko's tactic with Dax boils down to, you love Worf, and you know what he's like, and how important tradition is, so go apologize to Sorella and follow your heart. Cut to the ritual Klingon wedding. Sorella officiates and tells the story of Klingon gods and how they can't stop the dance. Maybe it's their last dance, and now two hearts beat as one. There's a traditional mock bat-left battle between bride and groom, then the traditional kiss, and then Sorella introducing the newlywed couple, her son and her daughter, to the crowd. Followed by Bashir and O'Brien with their mustakas drawn, rushing the happy couple. The end. Wonderful synopsis, John. Nice and short, nice and sweet. Probably like the wedding itself. Ah, there you so. go. <laughs> yes, yes. Ah, it's just so nice to see people smiling and having fun. It's it's been a while. Well, yeah. I mean, we've we've gone through a lot of war, a lot of uh, hardship, a lot of battle, a lot of stress, and now. Wait, we we're talking about the war, not the wedding, right? Oh yeah, it was a, it, you, you might say that we've been through death and life and together. Life together. <laughs> <laughs> I I really liked seeing like Nana and Avery in the ops uh, station at the beginning because they just had this this genuine cheer about them, and Nana's smile is it's heart melting. Yeah, it's just wow, it's just so genuine. But have you ever heard of that? Uh, the dynamic of the work husband and work wife. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. totally them. Yeah. That was that scene. It was just, yeah. Have I told you before? I mean, he might as well just say, have I told you before how much I missed your smile? Yeah. Or right. how much I miss seeing you in the morning? Right. Right. It was so sweet. Yeah. No, it, it was really nice. And, uh, and like I said, it was genuine. And I would just say in the bigger context for the number of bridge scenes and op scenes that we've seen in the hundreds of hours of Star Trek, it's just something like this stands out to you when the dynamic is different, when the mood is different. So mm. it was very cool. I'm <laughs> Martok calling out <laughs> Worf, not to his face, but to Cisco. Worf is nothing if not single-minded. I mean, it, it is, yes, it is a funny and interesting character trait. But again, I, I just, I'll say it here. I feel like Worf needs some help with this. Maybe if he had a good counselor, he wouldn't irritate his coworkers and family members with that. Hey, at one time he had a good counselor, but um, uh, hey uh -huh. Yeah, too soon. Right. Too soon. Right, too soon. Um, you know, when I just want to say this at the start of this because you're probably going to hear John and I talk about very similar things, but we don't compare our notes before we do the show. Mm -hmm. That means that these instances stand out that profoundly. But I, I said the same thing about Martok, and yeah. I wanted to high-five him <laughs> across the screen because <laughs> right. I was like, yes, he said it. And now I don't have to take the blame for saying it because yeah. Martok said it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I do love it. Yeah. And, and look, look let, let's give Worf his due, what he's good at, the master of the deadpan. Just that shot 
in Quark's, when it's Alexander talking to Dax and Worf, Quark interrupts and just, what do you want? <laughs> it's so <laughs> – it just – when you take a line that's literally four words, but you make it sing, that is – that's a, a terrific actor in a terrific moment. Yeah, that's that's Michael Dorn really understanding Worf. And yep. again, when Worf, when Worf is at that, that's peak Worf for me. Yep. Yep. Right. Absolutely. So – I guess because uh, Alexander and the way he is on his ship, at least on the Rotaran, does that mean that he's their albatross? It does a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are. That's reference to um, a rhyme of the ancient mariner by this H.P. Lovecraft. Yep, I believe. So, oh no, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, it's Coleridge. Coleridge. There you go. Coleridge. Um, I was thinking of something else, but yeah, he is the. And I was thinking of Iron Maiden, which obviously <laughs> makes me think of uh, H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> And I also liked how he smacked that tray that was behind him. Usually those kind of gaffes are, are not timed well. Yeah. But he, it just seemed like he was just a natural, you know, uh, John Ritter in yeah. that scene. Yeah. It, it was nicely done, nicely directed, and and set up in a way that you didn't just see it coming. It, it was it was perfectly done. Uh, and my gosh, I, I feel like we're going to be calling out a lot of Maratok's lines, but him saying my deterioration is proceeding apace and then <laughs> I shall endeavor to die this year. The dude is a regular Mark Twain. I love it. I absolutely love his dialogue. He snapped too, kind of like the the husband that is a little apprehensive about seeing his wife after all this time, so he's trying to make sure they're saying the right thing at the right time with the right emphasis and the right Yep. Beats and yeah, yeah, and it's also neat to see Martok kind of taken down a peg by this great general, yeah, this leader of the now the the new supreme commander of the Ninth Fleet, and now all of a sudden, right. Sorella comes on board. Well, she looked amazing, by the way. I love yes. the way that she was costumed, uh, shades of um, you know of uh, Azat Bor from uh, Star Trek Six, the other undiscovered country. Yeah. Just had that regal regalness. She has presence, no question about it. And I'm actually surprised we didn't see more of Shannon Cochran throughout Star Trek, because she's got presence. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the nice, like, kind of like uh, the way that they upshot the angle on her gave her a little bit more of that mm-hmm. that regalness to her. Uh, the turbo lift scene when Kira and Dax were talking about Worf and the wedding plans. Again, yeah. I didn't say this, and. <laughs> <laughs> Just like when General Marchak said it, and I've said this before on the show, Kira actually says, no offense, Jadzia, but it seems like this wedding is all about what Worf wants. Now, by my count, that's two characters in-universe in this episode that actually have said that. That's true, yeah. And you, you just wonder, like, okay, when will people start to listen to their friends and coworkers? But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to be the, you know, kind of like on the outside looking in and armchair quarterbacking that, but, yeah. you know. Consistency does have a point. So Worf talking about the the Kalhaya, yeah. the bachelor party, you know, minus Tom Hanks. Yeah, <laughs> right. I don't know if Worf has ever been in outside sales, but that's not exactly how you get people on board no. about no. Yeah. a bachelor party. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and Martok was selling that. He was like, unbridled pleasures. So I'm like... No? Yeah, yeah. No, I think we might come back to that. Uh, yeah. Oh, and, and the first thing right off the bat is, you know, uh, Alexander goes for that turkey leg and uh, Worf snaps, the food is not to be eaten. I'm like, I, I, I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> like, let's yeah. I'm call it a day right now. I guess I'm a bad Klingon. Yeah. That That is one of the unbridled pleasures. Yes. Unbridled food. Yeah. I, hey, <laughs> uh, unbridle me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, there's a scene where where Worf comes in and he says, you know, are those real, you know, Bahama candles? And I loved how Dax just said all of that, like the whole ritual yes. with such just dripping sarcasm. And yeah, Worf kind of swallowed his pride a little bit there. I may give him a pass on that because he was saying, like, I was just asking, but <laughs> learn how to ask. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Learn how to ask. Right. Uh, the other thing I found really super interesting was, so when when Sorella was uh, quizzing Dax on the lineage, the maternal lineage of her grandmother and her family, mm-hmm. it really sounded a lot like the writers, Ron Moore in this case, took a page out of history of the Romanov family from Russia. Yeah. Because it sounded like her great, 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 <laughs> to the nth degree, grandmother should have been who Anastasia Romanov was in history because the Romanov dynasty was murdered and yeah. then Anastasia or the uh, supposed Anastasia came back, tried to claim that, uh, you know, that, that lineage and was disproven, I believe. But yeah. That's that's where I felt with that particular bit with with Dax. I was like, "Hey, that sounds kind of historically familiar. I'll buy it." Yeah, yeah, and you know, it, it's always interesting that, uh, of course, you know, writers write what they know, and they're pulling from history and historical influences, and that that fits right in. The other thing that I love about that moment is that it really fits in, and in a very human way, too, uh, but it, it fits into kind of what we have grown to learn about the Klingons and, and how Klingons do some shady things, like perpetuating a pious lie, which, by the way, is still a lie, um, but they did it with the Kalos clone, and, and they will just keep on doing it. You know, who needs real honor? When you can just lie your way out of any situation by giving the illusion of honor. So that's what they do here. That's what they did with the Kalos clone and countless other examples. Um, but, hey, maybe that's a conversation better saved <laughs> for another segment. But it, it definitely made me think of that. Moving on to something more fun. Uh, the party scene is great. And after years of watching holographic loot performances, finally... <laughs> 30 years after the unseen Christmas party on the Enterprise, an actual party. Where I mean, look, we're going to come back to it because there's a lot to be said uh, thematically and how it fits into character development and story. But just as a slice of this episode, it's really good. And something that I left out of the trivia that I really liked was that David Livingston shot it in a very unconventional way, which is to just stage that party. So you got the live drums on set, you got Atoa doing his thing, you got everybody talking, making noise, and normally when you shoot a party or like a nightclub scene or something, it's silent. It's totally quiet, and yeah, dancers are just dancing to nothing. You strip that in later, but it's also you can just pick up the dialogue that you want to pick up, and you got clean cuts going from one shot to another. But in this, he was just like, nope. People be loud so that the actors have to yell their dialogue. And it just made it, it gave it life. It made it feel real. And, you know, the single scene, you know, in Starfleet and on Deep Space Nine, I know mm-hmm. it's tough. But if you really want to attract attention or if you really want to line up dates, all you need to do is be a huge Polynesian male mm-hmm. that can fire dance and you're good to go. That's pretty much how I want to come back in my next life. So just I mean, he was racking up the looks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. was racking up the looks by 
everybody. That was great. <laughs> that was such a good choice. Again, it gave it a little uh, bit of realism there. Hey, did you notice the uh, call out to Captain Shelby? Uh, mm-hmm. Like perhaps the Shelby who we met, who uh, was quickly on her way to some promotions way back in uh, Best of Both Worlds. Thought that was cool. Oh, obviously found somebody who couldn't take the big chair because mm-hmm. someone had to move aside from someone who could. Yeah. That was her. Exactly. Uh, the great, uh, that's uh, Elizabeth Dennehy. Yeah. So Ferengi dancing. What the Ferengi <laughs> was that? What is that? Okay. Uh, another bit of trivia that I left out because I thought it might come up. Purely improvised. That's what I thought. And in the way that Star Trek, in particular the way that Star Trek is made, but basically how TV is made, you don't improvise because you don't have time to improvise. And that that time is money. You got to move on to the next shot. You got to get exactly what's on that page so you can move on for everybody's sake. And in this case, Dave Livingston just said to Aaron, just do something crazy and – yeah, what the Ferengi, man. <laughs> yeah, what the Ferengi on that. But you know what? It worked. And I'd rather, tr- like, you know, want to, I- I'd rather see them try something that's just obtuse. Yeah. This is the right way of putting it. Right. Than, than a Ferengi trying to do what they usually do and kind of like in Buck Rogers when they were doing disco. I was just about to say that. <laughs> it's like, what do you do? Hey, how do cool people in the future yeah. dance? Well, yeah. not like that. Yeah. <laughs> Getting down with Gil Gerard. Yes, yes. Uh, I guess I know what I'm watching after we record today. Another great scene here. All all that great interplay with Bashir and O'Brien. I love Bashir getting sold out by his friends for the blood ritual. (laughs) I mean, just just a, a terrific, subtle moment. And then his promise to kill Worf. Because it could have... That scene could have landed in just a weird kind of inappropriate, uncomfortable place. But their back and forth with that was just so good. So funny. And just, you know, again, there are so many scenes of just the guys that are really good. But there's a lot of them walking around Deep Space Nine. And I understand that for the story, you have to have Worf come out of there and say the wedding's on, the wedding's off, back and forth, you know, uh, do all that bit. But for as punishing as this four-day ritual is, I was surprised to see that there was just a lot of them walking around Deep Space Nine. It's like, how long are you actually in there? Oh, okay, well, you can come out, might sip a little, you know, somebody to drink or have a little food Mm -hmm. before I go back in. Shh. Well, that's that's why Martok's line uh, and many of his lines were so great because when he said, you know, four days of this, and Martok's like, yeah. I know it's a short time. I know we have to do. That. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so funny. That was perfect. You know, I, I really wanted to get into that conversation with with Kira and Odo because there's so much left unsaid or unseen. Yeah. I should say. Yeah. But can we just skip that? Because I'm I'm a little uncomfortable about that kind of <laughs> yeah. talk. Too many. Too many of those real-time situations in my life where yeah. you went off the talk at a party and, yeah. Then the party talking. is over. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, Worf. Worf, Worf, Worf. Oh. Dax is so hungover as you can barely see straight. Yeah. And you got to go there, man. Why do you got to do that? Yeah. Why do you got to do that? That It's just... Yeah. A little too heavy-handed for, for hangover time. Yeah, he, he needs a bit of a uh, sensitivity adjustment, and uh, he failed that test. I was making light of this before about the food that O'Brien and Bashir are trying to, I don't know, 
get in before whatever happens next. But that was a lot of food. <laughs> I identify with that, though. I mean, look, I, I am Mr. You follow me at a Vegas buffet. I am Mr. Eyes Bigger Than Stomach, but I will power through. Yeah. By the way, I think we have to talk about this in that, that last scene, the, the, the finale of the episode, the Klingon wedding. I know we have to give the Klingons a look for their wedding. And you mentioned how great Sorella's costuming is because she just owns mm-hmm. it, you know. And this is the first Klingon wedding that we've seen, if I remember correctly. It really looks heavily influenced by a Ren Fair. I mean, I guess they went to Western costume and they're like, what do you have? And uh, they said, here, we're not we're not using this because uh, nobody's shooting a medieval uh, madrigal themed wedding. So go to it, Star Trek. Yeah, I wasn't really quite sure what I was looking at. And I'm pretty sure that, I don't know, maybe in Klingon fashion, doublets are a thing. Yeah. But I was looking for you know, slashed sleeves and, you know, something of of that affair. Yeah. A lot of red and gold, a lot of Klingon heavy, heavy, heavy cultural theme going on. But it was very dark fantasy. Yeah, and right. You know, you mentioned Western costumes. I'm pretty sure that I've seen these costumes before, maybe like in Red Sonia or Krull. Mm. Feats of Strength, airing of grievances. Is this a Klingon wedding or is it Festivus? Hey, we'll get right back to Klingon nuptials in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors this week, starting with ExpressVPN. You know, Norman, if you happen to be searching for things online, like, uh, let's say, I I don't know, Klingon mating rituals, Mm. because in the course of producing a show like this, you might have to do that. You, You probably don't want others to know what you're searching for if it's Klingon mating rituals. Or what have you. So now I know what most of you are thinking. You probably think, well, John, just use incognito mode. Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. No. And it doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browser history. Your internet service provider, they can see every single website that you have ever visited. That's why when I'm at home, when I'm at work, looking up Klingon mating rituals, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. Maybe that's why Bashir and O'Brien didn't look up Klingon mating rituals, because they don't have ExpressVPN. They do. That, that's why they know it's a Cardassian computer. They can't ex- install uh, ExpressVPN. Maybe they should have used their imagination. <laughs> but here's something that you don't have to use your imagination on. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast or Spectrum, your, your, wherever you have your local ISP. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. That's why ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. So I have it on all the time. Most of the time, I don't even realize that I have ExpressVPN on. I have to look for the little uh, widget in my menu bar to show that to me. It runs seamlessly in the background, and it is so easy to use. You literally just sign in, and once you've done that, all you're doing is tapping a button to show that you're on and you're protected or you're not. 
Now, ExpressVPN is available for all of your devices, phones, computers, tablets, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you to not be using it. So unless you want to get found looking at Klingon mating rituals and you really don't, protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash mission log, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log, expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. Hey, Norman, I don't know about you. Well, actually, I do know about you. You're probably a bit like me, always looking at a screen. And now more than ever, you go from computer to phone to tablet, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, whether it's for work or you're an avid news watcher or you're just in serious need of distraction, unplugging yourself, definitely easier said than done. So one of my favorite ways to rest my eyes and still stay up to date, still get the content that I'm itching for, uh, connect with podcasts, stories, etc., is by putting in my Raycon wireless earbuds and listening to something great while I'm out. I've been looking at so many screens, I've actually had to get reading glasses because I can't see some of the small print anymore. It happens. <laughs> but, you know, but reading glasses. Wait, so I, th- I thought you were going to try Retinax 5. I'm allergic to Retinax 5. Oh, okay. Yeah, but what I'm not allergic to and what's not uncomfortable is my Raycon. So whether you're catching up on your favorite news podcast or binging an audiobook or powering through your workout with a pumped-up playlist, a pair of Raycons in your ears can make all the difference. Now, what I love about my Raycons, the case. I love how small the profile of the case is because it, when you open it, it seamlessly pairs Bluetooth to your phone or whatever device you're using. And once again, they're comfortable. And they are really easy to carry around. Yeah, and there's so much more. You know, there's no dangling wires or stems to get in the way. They come in a range of stylish colors, and they're just always comfortable with that in-ear fit for a more discreet look. Uh, They perform anywhere and anytime uh, with water and sweat-resistant construction and Bluetooth that pairs, like you said, Norman, quickly and seamlessly. And uh, how about with enough battery life for six hours of playtime? You can unplug for a while. The best part, Raycon makes great sound accessible to everyone with wireless earbuds starting at, get this, half the price of other premium audio brands. And I also love when you open up the case, you hear the Raycons in the earbuds. (laughs) Right. That nice little sound chirp. Raycon. No, they're on. Raycon. (laughs) So Raycon's offering 15% off of all their products for our listeners. And here's what you've got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com slash mission log. That's it. You'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. So feel free to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off buyraycon.com slash mission log. Buyraycon.com slash mission log. All right, Norman. Here we go. You are cordially invited to discuss you are cordially invited. <laughs> and, uh, and there's so much to say about this episode, so much to get into. I want to kick things off with a really positive note. And that is this. For the first time, for the first time ever, I like Alexander. They, they, they figured him out. 
I, I mean, and I'm not saying that I, I didn't like the actors before. I didn't like the idea of Alexander before. It's just that they never quite seemed to know what to do with him. It was always about, well, we got to get him out of here so we can continue the war story. Um, and, and keep in mind that me saying that I like Alexander here, it has nothing to do with Worf. Oh, no, no, no. He, he is not off the hook as far as I'm concerned. But they found a formula and a character that really works for Alexander. He is comfortable in his own skin, which is a lot more than I can say for his father. He is self-deprecating mm -hmm. without being pathetic. He's in on the joke, even if he's part of the joke. How did it take them so long to figure this out? I mean, this is an Alexander who I was like, yeah, I could see more of this kid. He 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 would be a great foil when you got Nog and you got Jake and we're going to have another young person on the show. This is a great Alexander. Yeah, I totally bought into him at the very beginning of the episode. I thought that you're right. He was comfortable in his skin and he is who he is and he makes no apologies about it. I love how goofy he is and how clumsy he is. But at the same time, though, much like General Martok said, he, he has the heart of his father. Yeah, right. He has the, the earnestness of wanting to do right by his, by his fellow Klingons and the people on his ship. He's just, you know, a little rough around the edges, but he's trying. And, and I, I really liked how the actor just embraced the role and, and just made him just a really fun character to watch. There's even a line in there. It's a total throwaway line where he says, I don't even know how to say my own name in Klingon. But it, it, yeah. it's great. That, that is a person who is just totally accepting of himself and having fun. And that's mm -hmm. all you can and should ask of a character like that. So bravo he's to like them. The, he's like the opposite, the complete opposite of Worf, where Worf is about the seriousness of tradition yeah. and yeah. stoic to a fault. Humorless almost to a fault. Yeah. Alexander's like, hey, man, I don't even know what this bachelor party is all about. You're asking me? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. Right. All right, let's talk about the bachelor party. Uh, and I mean the, the terrible one first. Um, Klingon yeah. rituals. Uh, I just I, – I, I want to get this out of the way up front because I, I had weird kind of mixed feelings about this. Look, I, I've never been in a fraternity, so I really don't get the idea of hazing. I, now, I do understand – psychologically people bond through adversity and i do think that that's admirable manufacturing it though seems really weird to me and uh, on the sort of you know fun ritual hazing okay some fraternities and sororities take that way too far but the idea the spirit behind it is we're just going to do this thing to sort of push you and bond with you and like i said on paper i get it then there are things that, you know, you read about people who in other ritual situations push themselves entirely too far, sometimes in a situation like that, like a frat, or other times, you know, several years ago, there was a story, I think it came out of Arizona about like a, a spiritual leader, self-styled guru who is keeping people in a hothouse like this. This is immediately what I thought of when I saw this. And people died literally died because he wouldn't let them out of this ritual experience. Like, no, you just got to push through the pain. This will make you stronger. You know, no, absolutely not. People died because of this misguided idea that you have to torture or be tortured to be stronger on the other end. It seems to me like 
there is a much better, much more reasonable place to come to without forcing people through this kind of terrible pain. I think about that scene with the blood ritual where Worf says to Bashir, the pain will only last a moment. Like, and then you cut to commercial. I keep thinking if we hadn't cut to commercial, Bashir's getting stabbed, you know, and then, then you got to call a medic to fix him up. But he's still yeah, going medic for your medic. Yeah, yeah. But he, but he's still <laughs> got to remember. He's still going to remember that that happened to him, which seems terrible. Yeah, I was waiting for that that traditional Klingon palm slice, you know, with their dagger. Oh, of course, as part of that blood ritual. Yep, you know, yep. I was watching this over and over again to try and make sense of of this whole tradition. And one of the things that I found really interesting was how like on board like Martok was, and how he was looking forward to it. And I think. In many ways, and this may this may be just conjecture, but I think that at one point in time, Martok was kind of like Worf. Mm. He loves mm. tradition. He loves looking forward to all these rituals. And, you know, he even tried to uh, encourage them, encourage the non-Klingons in this party with a little bit of competition. You know, it's okay that you can't stand this. Right. Klingons can, but right. you all can't. You know, so if you want to turn the heat down, that's okay because you're not Klingon. <laughs> but and it, but 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 look, the, the difference though is, you know, Martok he is and has been bound by tradition, but he sees the fun of the tradition. Like I don't consider myself a very traditional person, but there are traditions and and cultural things that I still do and that I still embrace because the spirit of it is way more important than the actual task, the, the, the actual tradition itself. It really is, a, you know, Martok is 100% the spirit of the event or the law. Worf is just the word of the law. Like, that's it. Like, so we do the ritual because the ritual is the ritual. Martok's like, we're just, we're guys having fun. We're hanging out. This is what we do. <laughs> you know? It's the optimist in, me, uh, optimist in me, and then maybe marriage will mellow Worf. <laughs> like, Sorella mellowed Martok. Okay. <laughs> We're on positive, John. We're on positive right. messages here. Right. Yeah. Yes, of course. All right. Let's let's move on to Dax and Dax's party. And there's so much going on there. So, so much happening. And I feel like it, we could do this show for three hours and we still would have only scratched the surface. I do want to start out by talking a little bit about the sexual politics of Star Trek because they've always been a little tricky. And let's face it, part of the reason is that this is a TV show that is generally designed for a family audience that could be aired at any time of the day. We've gotten little hints here and there about what we are to make of relationships in the 24th century, and very often they fall short of really coming out and saying anything. And next gen, those little glimpses we got, well, you move on to the next week and then something else has happened. And then Worf is dating Deanna Troy for some reason. And then they're not. And then we're back to the Rikers. And then who knows? They're still seeing other people. We're not quite sure there. Now we've got a party that gets a little wild with a character who is absolutely a free spirit informed by the multiple lifetimes of experience that she has. She could or would have had a fling with fire dancing Lieutenant Otoa. That is something that Ronald D. Moore certainly uh, indicated and indicated later. Hey, he wouldn't though. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and honestly, 
this is probably one of those places where Trek could have been telling us about the kinds of relationships some people are having in the future. Definitely not the O'Briens. Let's make that very clear. But but some people. And this this goes back to the greater point that Worf does not know Dax. He does not understand Dax. And he is making this huge mistake by trying to fit her into this mold of what he thinks his wife should be. Because if they hadn't gotten drunk enough, who knows what have happened. Look, Morn was there too. And Morn, well, Morn's not telling anybody what happened. <laughs> but Mm-mm. His lips are always... Sweet. Always, except when he's got that martini glass, which, by the way, I love. He walks out of there with that glass. That basically, for me, that sets the stage of a lot of what's wrong here. And, and here's where I'm going to go with all of this. Dax is too good for Worf. She's too good for pretty much anybody else on that station. And and I hate that part of what we see in this episode is compromise. And it's not compromise in a good way, but, but in a way that makes me feel disappointed and icky about these characters. I want Dax to keep being the awesome, assertive, smart, and free person that she is, completely self-possessed. And not have to answer to anyone else's demands or expectations of who she should be. Do you think that in that party scene, she was flexing a little bit in reaction to how demanding and demoralizing that Sorella was to her? 100%. She's just like, you know what? Yep. I'm going to go completely the opposite direction. And it has been seen in the past how flirty Dax can be. I mean, when we were, when she was um, talking about seeing Dr. McCoy and how Emily remembered how surgical his hands were yeah. when they were back at Old Miss right. and that little twinkle in her <laughs> right, eye. Right. I mean, that's Dax. You know, that's, yeah. well, I mean, that's obviously a memory that was uh, special to her. And I'm not sure if anything would happen with Lieutenant Atoa. You know, who knows what happens at a party with Morn. But <laughs> I think that she just wanted to be this carefree spirit again before she goes to her, her wedding vows. And I don't think that's unreasonable, right? I don't think that, that she was out of place because that is kind of what a bachelor or bachelorette party is for. You're supposed to get these urges out of your system. Whether you act on them or not, that's completely up to that person. No judgment there. But it's the complete opposite of what was going on with Worf's bachelor party. The complete opposite. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the complicating factor here is that Dax, as we learned, is 356 years old. There's all those memories, including the memories of the five other marriages and who knows how many other lovers in between there. And this is kind of, you know, going back to your wheelhouse, Norman, this is kind of like the Highlander problem. Yeah, you you can have love, you can have a relationship, but then that other person is going to be gone before Mm -hmm. those memories of the Dax symbiont at least fade away. So automatically, there is an imbalance in how these two are going to see each other. Worf is saying, we're together until we die. Well, sorry, Worf. There is a part of the person that you just married for whom you are one of many. And presumably, there will be more after that. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. But I I want to respond in kind, but I would be stealing my own thunder 
later on in the show. So <laughs> okay. I will I will cliffhanger my response for the audience. Yeah. Well, let, let, we'll talk a little bit about the, the compromises here. And I, I, I feel like my feelings about the level of compromise in this show uh, or this episode is that it's made worse by the fact that we don't really have any resolution with Sorella. Um, because as I mentioned in the recap, you just you have this moment of what leads up to something Cisco saying to Dax, like, okay, go fix this. You know, you, you basically, you have to go bow and scrape before Sorella, and you have to go fix this with Worf. And we don't see any of that. So in the end, all we can put together is that Dax has to learn to bend to what Worf needs and apparently to what will make Sorella happy. Now, I know that I'm oversimplifying a bit uh, because we are missing those scenes that should have been there where Dax puts her foot down and and earns Sorella's respect because I think that's the only way that Sorella could go through with this. But look, Dax fought a freaking blood oath name check episode with some of the greatest mm-hmm. Klingon generals. And here's Martok's bigoted wife to just Come along and tell her she's no good. Targ, please. Targ, please. Mm-hmm. Is that our new band name? We're going through a lot of band Either that or it's going so. on a shirt. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, I, I like what you're saying here. And I think that in retrospect, they could probably have shaved off a lot of the, the, bachelor, the Klingon bachelor party and just kind of like a lot of the standing around and going through all the rituals of not eating and hanging from a pole and getting cut, presumably, yeah. to spending more exposition on that. Because I wanted to see that that Sorella came around after Dax, like, you know, clocked her. Because she would have been like, that's what I've been waiting for. That's what I've been hoping that you would do. See, I expected that. Or I expected that you take that scene with uh, exposing the family lineage and you move that to later. That, that mm-hmm. something has got to break Sorella. And we don't have any indication that anything broke Sorella except that Dax begged. Because that's how she entered that scene with Cisco was saying like, yeah, now I have to go, you know, beg for forgiveness and I'm not going to do that. Well, okay, but I love Worf. I, uh, it, that is enormously disappointing. I, I do want to give the show overall, because this is not about Sorella specifically being a, you know, reprehensible character. I actually want to give the, the the writers here some props about Sorella. We've gotten to know so much about Martok in a relatively short period of time on DS9. And they've really given him a lot of dimension in those scenes that we've gotten with him. Throwing Sorella in there as a foil for him, just to, as you said, you know, it, like you take him down a little notch. That's smart. It doesn't take away from our admiration of him, but it just adds information mm-hmm. about how we see Martok. It, it makes him a, a more full person, a more full character. And actually, the politics of this reminds me of HBO's Rome, and not certainly not the first example of this, but it's one that's prominent in my mind, so I'll give that show a shout-out. That was a series that, I mean, still completely brilliant. Everybody should watch it if they haven't. Uh, it was about the rise and death of Julius Caesar. Uh, he dies at the end of season one. Spoiler, what happens later. And, and the problem with a lot of textbook history as it's written is that it's usually just about the men making big political moves because that is the history that's written. 
And what you often don't see is family life and personal influences. And Rome, the series, went to great efforts to have the women characters who were just as vital to the story, even if they weren't the ones who at the time had the impressive official titles, they were still there. They they were the uh, you know the the mistress of the house, and they would have influence over the men who were making the political decisions. So I, I immediately thought of that, and again, plenty of other examples of stories that do that. But I thought that was executed really well here to show another layer of Klingon cultural and political differences to make that a little more multidimensional. But it also gives Martok an, another sense of realism, as you said, an, another facet to his character, because sometimes, and I think we've all experienced this in one way or another, you see the boss at work, and then if you have the rare opportunity, you get to see the boss at home with the family. And these are two completely different people, and you actually get to see that his or her authority isn't universal, not like it is in the workplace. That authority has to bow to another authority, and that's usually whoever they are with or their family. Right. Because that's not, you can't take your business persona and apply that, I'm saying this in general, but apply that to how you run a household. It doesn't work that way. And you are held to task when it comes to being the home version of yourself, the non-work version of yourself versus people that they don't have to capitulate to your every work order or desire. Yeah. I, I you know, I, there may be not a lot to make of it here, but there was another little point that stuck out to me, which is how isolated Klingon culture is. Just because in, in the bigger picture of Star Trek, the Federation is all about cultural exchange. And maybe this is one of those reasons that the alliance with the Klingons has often been on shaky ground with them not becoming members and, you know, we, Ketterman was on, Ketterman was off, it's back on. Is that okay, though? You know, are they entitled to shun outsiders to turn up their noses at the very idea of mixing with others who aren't like them? I mean, that is part of the deal. And honestly, this episode spells it out better than most, which is why Worf has had such a hard time. Although Kalar, rest her soul, was half human, and she was pretty mm-hmm. awesome and self-possessed. <laughs> she was a yeah. pretty great character. But by going that deep with this and just saying, no, th- this is who Klingons are. We are isolationists. We do not want anybody who is not Klingon among us. It says something to the bigger picture about who Worf is but about also who they are and why there is this uneasy uh, alliance with the Federation. That's something that struck me funny in this one particular scene where Worf and Martok were talking about Lady Sorella. And earlier, Martok said to Sisko, by marrying Worf, Dash will be joining the house of Martok. Since the mistress of a great house must approve all marriages, Sorella will spend the next four days evaluating Jadzia. That is tradition. Mm -hmm. Remember this word, tradition. Later, when Worf is questioning, you know, what this marriage is going to be or questioning, not necessarily questioning his feelings for Dash, but questioning why is she this way, you know, or what am I doing or how is this marriage going to move forward? Why is Lady Sorella here? Worf was surprised that Martok told Lady Sorella about the marriage and 
Martok says she believes that by bringing aliens into our families, we risk losing our identity as Klingons. And Worf says, much to his credit, that is a prejudiced, xenophobic view. That is the Starfleet in him saying that. Absolutely. And then Martok says, we are Klingons, Worf. We don't embrace other cultures. If someone wishes to join us, they must honor our traditions and prove themselves worthy of wearing the crest of a great house. Worf says, Jadzia is worthy. So, yeah. Worf, being the traditionalist that he is, ad nauseum, because we have seen this time and again, he knows that Lady Sorella and what she's doing is Klingon tradition. And if she chooses Dax to be unworthy, he must thereby uh, adhere to Lady Sorella's recommendation of either, yes, the wedding is on, or no, the wedding is off. But, much like Worf again, he's not getting his way about it. And he's cherry-picking what traditions serve him best. Yeah. And I still believe in the 24th century, this is still called hypocrisy. Yeah, look, therein lies the problem with blind adherence to tradition or dogma. Uh, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely, it's hypocrisy. The other thing that we never really um, discussed was, and this was you know, uh, implied off camera, what happened during the talk? Uh. The quote-unquote talk. Because we're of a belief that it's better to show on a visual narrative, you know, show and tell as opposed to just imply that tell. So what happened there? Did they resolve anything? Are we going to see the fruits of that resolution? Or are we just set for speculation as we're doing right now? This is a storytelling no-no in my opinion. Exhibition to Odo's behavior... And the explanation that Kira deserves is something that has to be seen between the two of them so we, the audience, can can take hold of that resolution and understand that as we are going through their journey together with them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. That that was a big mistake to not elucidate a little more on what happened there. Um, particularly when you've got such good actors. We get such gold out of Rene Aubergenois' Odo. And there was such conflict and depth over what we just got out of that arc that it's a a real slap in the face to not have a proper resolution to that. Of all the Star Trek spin-offs we've gotten, why has no one pitched a sitcom called At Home with the Martoks? Well, John, we've eaten the food, we've danced the floor to splinters, we even had maybe a sword fight or two. Well, that's, that's up to your imagination. Remember, imagination is a big word in this episode. So, not using your imagination and actually describing how you felt about this episode, unlike Odo and Kira in their chambers, how did this land for you? What were the morals and meanings and messages that we'll get to later? And does this episode hold up overall? Huh. <laughs> uh, is that the food talking are you, are you yeah right right food? yeah i've got i'm gonna eat a steak and some pasta and a whole loaf of bread um uh, at first blush i was ready to just completely hate this episode and write it off and 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 yes look there are many things about it that i do not like at all which i'm sure we will continue to discuss as we wrap it up here um 
I'll give them this, though. Um, after what we've just had on DS9, we did need something light, something fun, and just to hang out with our beloved characters. Same way that TNG would do a light romantic comedy from time to time, and DS9 does sometimes, too. This is in that mold. And yes, there are moments that absolutely made me laugh out loud. Um, I feel like in our act two, you know, we could have just gone through all the great lines because there is some cracking dialogue here. But I didn't just want to wait on our podcast by calling out every single line. <laughs> That's what that would have been. I loved Alexander. I, I mentioned that. I loved the interplay in our our, our guy characters. I, I love seeing Dax cut loose. You know, there's so much that I liked here. But there are a lot of moments that made me cringe. Now, look, th there's no way that this is an episode that I would just sweep under the rug and pretend like it doesn't exist. It does have some interesting parts in it. It does push along that story about Dax and Worf because, hey, we're going there with them, so... We, we might as well have them get married. At the same time, though, this just feels dated, even for when it came out in 1997. There, you know, I've mentioned it before how Star Trek will try to do this broad romantic farce sex comedy kind of thing. And it just doesn't really ever land perfectly. And here we're tied up in the complexity of the House of Martok and Worf's issues and Dax, who is this terrifically complex character. So to reduce all of that to what we got here in 45 minutes, I feel like is very unfair. They spent too much time on this episode on the dead ends and not really resolving anything of much importance. And I think also leaving us with some terrible messages about how to navigate relationships. I, I'm honestly worried for just about everybody in this episode. <laughs> so so I, I, I can't, you know, d does it hold up? Okay, well, it, it holds up just purely as a piece of a much bigger puzzle because we followed the Dax and Worf story. But, but just as an episode, as what they accomplished in this particular 45 minutes, no. Uh, how about you, Norman? I'm feeling a little comatose from the food, and I, I wish mm -hmm. um, I wish I could take a nap right now. But I'm going to take a deep breath, and I think all of you should too. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to try and be as, like I said, as as honest and as uh, critical about this as as how this landed for me. Does this episode hold up for me? Absolutely not. And pretty much because of all the reasons that we have listed before, but especially because of one particular scene. That really just did not sit well with me. It was the scene where Cisco lambasts Dax about her not crawling back on her hands and knees to Sorella. And I quote, Cisco told Dax, to her, you're just a young woman who's decided to marry into her family. If it means you have to bow down and kiss her boots, that's exactly what you have to do. And you knew that. The moment you decided to marry Worf, you knew that sooner or later you'd have to bow down and show her the respect that she's due. First of all, <sighs> no. No. That, that's not what Dax signed up for. That's not what she was anticipating because no. she did not know that she was going to be judged uh, unequivocally by mm -hmm. Sorella. Now, I agree with Benjamin that Jadzia can expect leniency here from Sorella. We, um, we've referenced that the Curzon that 
maybe Jadzia expects to have some sway with her, that doesn't exist anymore. The ambassador and the trill negotiator of the Kittimer Accords. But as the captain, and especially her best friend, and Curzon's best friend, Cisco's supposed to have her back. 100% without question. And try and find some way to see where Jadzia's coming from. He knows that she's headstrong and impetuous and free spirit. Mm-hmm. But that's because she's balancing all these nuances in her trill memories and her, her current existence as Jadzia. And she has all these impulses, especially Curzon's. We know that Curzon was, you know, he was a haymaker back in the day. And that's causing the conflict between Dax and Sorella. So how can you blame her for feeling the way she does? How Dax feels the way that she does? This, is, this isn't about pointing blame. It's about Cisco not siding with Dax and telling her to, quote unquote, kiss Sorella's boots. It's about Cisco trying to find the best solution for both parties to get what they both want, to communicate, to sacrifice, to give and take, to reconcile these differences. This is what Cisco as Dax's best friend, and as the captain should have tried to do. Instead, he tells Dax to swallow not just her pride, but all of the pride of her hosts as well, especially Curzon's. And I felt that, again, Dax's feelings were just cast aside so that the Klingons can have their way. Right. And I'd like to digress a little bit here from that point, because in all honesty, Dax's character for me was compromised from basically her developmental standpoint when Worf was added to the cast. For me, Dax, for the first three seasons, was one of the most interesting and intriguing and entertaining characters that I was watching for those first three seasons and and some of season four. But then, as soon as Worf came into play, she just became a romantic sounding board for him, and her momentum was sidelined. And I went back to Facets and Blood Oath. Remember the the Mm -hmm. episode that she was with three of the greatest Klingon legends of all time, and that's not good enough for her resume right. to get married. And I found her character to be so much more interesting then because it was the Dax that we have learned to embrace and the journey that she was on, and that's no longer the Dax that was at the end of this episode. And I find that very tragic about, not just for Dax, but for Terry as well, because they really don't give her that the meat of some of those great episodes that she was given to work with before. Yeah. Well, and I think that that setup is the perfect way to land on these really kind of uncomfortable morals, meanings, messages at the end of the episode. Like, if I can point out anything positive, even though there is a total scene missing here, Odo and Kira, okay, so they need to talk it out. And they did talk it out, and apparently they're better for it. But that would have been a very interesting way to see how they came to that compromise. And I say compromise in the best sense of the word there. Um, Jake, Quark, etc., don't gossip. Okay, just don't. Um, Using your imagination is not a good way to go in this case. Now we get to the difficult places. Martok says, do you think Sorella is anything like the woman I thought I would marry? Martok. I love you, man, but that's on you, okay? That, that's, it sounds like there are deeper issues going on there. Yes, their interplay is funny, uh, but that was a moment of clarity and honesty with Worf. And, um, I, you know, maybe Martok needs to see the same counselor as Worf. Dax, I'll say it again so you can hear me. 
you don't owe any of these people anything. You do not need to bow and scrape and try to become someone you're not just to keep Martok's wife happy. Um, I didn't feel like at the end of this episode that there was growth for the people who needed it most. For Worf to stand up to Sorella. For Dax to stand up to Worf. For Martok to stand up to Sorella. And Sorella to get past being an awful person. Because all we know is just something happened, which was a huge compromise in the worst sense of the word. And suddenly there's a marriage. Suddenly there's a wedding happening. Um, And I'm really... Uh, precisely for the reasons that you laid out uh, just a minute ago, Norman, I'm really disappointed in Cisco here because Cisco seems to want it both ways with Dax. You're just a young woman, meaning in Cirilla's eyes, you're 356 years old. As he says to the part of Dax that is 356 years old, you know what you were getting into, but you didn't. And I'm sorry, Ben, but this is not a helpful way to guide and, as you put it, to have the back of your friend. This is a path into the worst possible kind of compromise where we're just saying, eh, but you're in love, so just do it anyway. Swallow your pride, swallow your convictions, your principles, eh, just go ahead. What could possibly go wrong? Well, I guess this this episode kind of boils down to communication, you know, communication and relationships. Probably the most profound we actually didn't get a chance to see because it was off camera. It was assumed to be an off camera conversation that lasted throughout the night between Odo and Kira. That's that's a huge step in their relationship and something that was worth exploring. Yeah. But here's the one thing that, okay, folks, like, you know, if you're listening out there, you want to sit down for this. I'm actually <laughs> going to agree with Worf on something here. Oh, I think I better about, sit down for this. Yeah. Yeah, and this is about <laughs> communication. The thing is, is that Worf didn't say this to Jadzia. He said it to Martok. Mm-hmm. And he should have said this to Jadzia. He said that anyone can see that we are hopelessly mismatched. She is a trill. I am a Klingon. She has had five marriages. This would be my first. When she is laughing, I am somber. When I am happy, she is crying. She plays Tonga with the Ferengi bartender. I can barely stand him. She mocks everything while I take everything seriously. She is nothing like the woman I thought I would marry. Now, Worf is pondering exactly what we needed to see in more of the earlier episodes so we could watch both of them grow in the relationship from conversations like this but instead on the eve of their wedding they're still polar opposites that's not how relationships work yeah and certainly not grounds for a marriage relationships are are complicated and they're nuanced and they take a great deal of communication and sacrifice and we've seen none of that on Worf's part throughout the course of this entire relationship so how can we buy into the sincerity of their wedding when all of a sudden it's now Worf has a breakthrough just now, and he <laughs> believes he's beginning to understand just how complicated relationships can be, let alone a lifelong commitment. So my biggest dilemma or concern or issue, whatever you want to call it, uh, regarding this whole Worf and Dax relationship, since they started their relationship, it's been this exact same pattern all over again. Worf gets his way, or he sulks about it to the point where either Dax just capitulates or becomes the apologist for his behavior. Sentimentalist or not, it's bad behavior. Mm -hmm. And I went back to the very beginning of their relationship, and not once, not once, 
did I ever see Worf do something even remotely romantic for Dax or put her needs first? And I'm talking about like acts of romance and passion. I mean, that can happen like regardless of, of a relationship. That's just sure. you know, in, being in the moment, uh, uh, you know, being in that courtship phase. But I'm talking about acts of true romance where he showed like the slightest tenderness or understanding in the relationship and, and moving forward into marriage. So my big question is, why does Dax want to marry him? If this episode proves anything, it's that they are wrong for each other because their history proves this. I, they, should, not... they should have figured that out on Riza, but yes. Oh, God. <laughs> Let's not go back. I know. Again. I know. I brought up a bad word. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, John. Yeah. I'm John's sorry. Loathing. Sorry that, for the memories. For that episode. Yeah. No, it's so true. But, you know, I don't think either of us are, are naive to think that the writers aren't trying to wrap up this storyline as a milestone. Yeah. It was a big event. I remember seeing it on all the, the, uh, the, the magazines at the time which featured those costumes in great detail. <laughs> and I get it. And I'm not necessarily bringing all of my critique here to bear on them getting married, but I just wanted to see somewhere, just one scene where Worf admits to Jedzia, like he admitted and confessed to Martok, that even if he always hasn't put her needs before his, at least he promises to do better by her in the future. I think she deserves that. So the reason why... I said what I said in uh, does this hold up in, in this morals and meetings and messages. The reason why I've come to this conclusion is because without seeing any earnestness in devotion to their relationship, I can't commit myself emotionally as a fan to their relationship and, and certainly not to their wedding. Yeah. Worf, do better. Dax, you are better. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Resurrection. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. It's too bad Warp's brother couldn't make it to the wedding. He probably forgot. Transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.